Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, speaking to you on a fair to middling Melbourne evening in the radio studios, studios of the Monash University Media Lab. This episode's guest is Toby Miller, and he joins me via Skype from London. Toby is a distinguished international figure in media and cultural studies. His research and public commentaries over the years have spanned an impressively wide range of issues, including sports, labour, gender, race, citizenship, politics and cultural policy. Indeed, I've been reading his research since I was an undergrad. He is the author and editor of over 30 books and his essays have been published in more than 100 journals and edited collections. He also performs many roles for universities around the world. He is the director of the Institute for Media and Creative Industries at Loughborough University, London. The Sir Walter Murdoch Professor of Cultural Policy Studies at Murdoch University in Perth. A part-time research professor of media and cultural studies at Cardiff University and a visiting professor in the Department of Social Communication at Universidad del Norte in Colombia. Further information about Toby's many activities can be found on his personal website, which is available at the following URL, www.tobymiller.org. The focus of our discussion in this episode is the relationship between sport and the environment. Toby's most recent book, Greenwashing Sport, has just been released by Routledge. I enjoyed reading it immensely even as I bristled at the systemic environmental problems that are perpetuated by or intersect through the professional sport industries. It's a book that addresses sport as something that exists at the intersection of nature and culture and indeed that intersection has a long history. Sport involves the exertion of human power over nature through modernity but it is also perceived in some ways as natural because of its relationship to human striving and the body and the fact that many competitions are staged in quasi-natural landscapes. Think, for instance, about the Winter Olympics and its, uh, its staging in alpine settings. Toby goes on to construct his arguments by examining motor racing, association football, and the Football World Cup in particular, and the Olympics. It is also worth noting that Greenwashing Sport is a title that follows on from his excellent 2012 co-authored book, Greening the Media, which was written with Richard Maxwell. Prior to commencing our chat, I also want to acknowledge Toby's role in the creation of the Media Sport podcast series. It was his inaugural Cultural Studies podcast series, which started life in 2011, that provided the inspiration for my own efforts. Toby, thank you for joining me. Well, Brett, thank you for such a kind introduction. And it's a great honour to be with you. As your listeners will know, you are one of the most distinguished commentators and scholars in the area of media and sports in the world. So to be ushered into the podcast in this way by you is really something. That's appreciated. Now, in seeking to understand why you came to write Greenwashing Sport, how does it build on your previous research on sport, but also the arguments you presented in Greening the Media? Well, I think in terms of my interest in sports, you know, there were these three books I was involved in. One I co-edited with the late Randy Martin called Sport Cult, came out about 20 years ago. One that resulted from a long-term collaboration with Jim Mackay, Jeff Lawrence and David Rowe, Globalization and Sport, which came out in 
2001, I think, missed the Sydney Olympics in order that British scholars could have, they were published in, in time for their research assessment exercise <laughs> at the time. And Sports Sex, which came out also in 2001, which is about gender. And, and really those things encapsulated work I've been doing for a long time. And then I guess I fell into a world as they say in trailers for Hollywood, in a world where Brett Hutchins, etc., etc., must take on single-handed the forces of lightness. I fell into a, a spot where when people asked me to write about sports, I did based on my previous publications, but I was required in a way to move into different areas related more to the media because of the kind of employment that I had. Plus, I always saw myself as a I hope, informed and informing visitor to sports sociology rather than a real expert. So anyway, that, that was why there was a hiatus, if you like. In terms of the connection to those topics, it seems to me that if you're thinking about questions of inequality and power in sports as constitutive components thereof, as well as things like gender and race and class, which were the things that had preoccupied us in those enterprises, Prizes, along with questions of cultural difference and multinational power, then pretty soon you need to get into the power question, not just in terms of the influence of one over another, but power as in electricity, as in light, as in the forms of energy that animate sports. And this began for me as an offshoot in a way from the Greening the Media work. As you said, Rick and I did that book in 2012. And since that year, we've had a monthly column in Psychology Today, the online version of the Populist magazine with the same title. Really, it's self-emanating from something Andrew Ross gave me maybe 14 years ago, which was a report about the influence of electronic waste on the occupational health and safety and daily life of people in the informal sector working in China, so-called rag pickers. And as I got interested in that and thought of the connections that that had to everything from filmmaking through to sports, I began to focus my thoughts around what does this mean if you're talking about watching a football game or going to a cricket match or the difference between watching a football game on your telephone versus watching it on television. And that's really the story of the efflorescence of this wee bird. And what does sport tell us or reveal that, say, other areas of popular culture don't, I, I suppose, if, without making direct comparisons, you know, I suppose we could look at the environment um, through music or film or, or video games, things like this. What, what, what does sport get to in a way that some, perhaps some other subjects can't? Very good question. I think a core element to what sport can provide light on is to do with two things. First of all, those sports that are constitutively energy hogs. So motor racing, you mentioned that in the introduction, and I look in the book at Formula One and NASCAR, which is US stock racing, as many listeners will be aware. But also sports that are extremely spectacular, occur rarely, and involve an immense amount of travel. So here one thinks of the World Cup of men's football and also the Winter and Summer Olympics. These are things that, whereas, you know, Formula One goes on really around the clock all year, 
many other sports are seasonal. In the case of the Men's World Cup of Football and the Summer and Winter Olympics, they're quadrennial. They're compacted into just semi-seasonal, but only semi. But everybody knows that they involve people coming from all over the world to be together in one place. And then, of course, traveling within that place. So it seems to me that there are aspects there that lend themselves to an ecological critique or awareness. One, areas like motor car racing. Two, areas like these mega events that require so much travel. Because one of the things that, for example, football fans here in Britain, where I am at the moment, focus on just domestically is the price of travel and then the price of ticketing. Of course, in a place like Australia or the United States, even for domestic travel, that can be immensely costly. And my hope is that the fans who are quite rightly activists about travel prices, accommodation prices, ticket prices, and so on as part of their support for their teams, can be made to think about not only in consumer terms, but also in citizen terms. In other words, ways to think about the impact on the natural environment as well as on their uh, back pocket. And in I suppose influencing those ways of thinking uh, among fan groups and citizens uh, in a more general sense, the role of environmental activism and active and, and sort of uh, NGOs and so comes into play. In your mind, how effective or ineffective have NGOs and activist groups been in using sport as a platform to promote pro-environmental pro messages? I guess the most prominent example of this, at least in the recent past, would be Greenpeace undertaken at various uh, major European football events because Gazprom, the, the quasi-private, quasi-public Russian extractive minerals enterprise, is a principal sponsor of the Champions League. And so as part of its protest against Gazprom's activities in the Arctic, Greenpeace has endeavoured to disrupt things like the Champions League final and other events. In my view, those efforts have been unsuccessful. They're unsuccessful because, and the same thing applies when Greenpeace has acted against Shell at Formula One events, they're operating as outsiders. They're not there as sports fans. They're there doing a kind of secondary boycott. In other words, they're protesting and seeking support for protesting football or motor racing fans, not based on the football or the motor racing, but based on who the sponsors are. And it seems to me that's ill-advised. Uh, rather, what they should be doing is working with significant activist groups, certainly within European football, that are concerned, for example, the Football Supporters Federation, with issues of travel and pricing and so on. And the Football Supporters Federation published a blog that was derived from my work and also in organisationally worried about issues such as corporate and social responsibility and impact on the environment. So I don't think that the activism we've seen thus far has been particularly successful. I also think that probably one needs to have two wings of action occurring at once. One wing is the wing of, if you like, technocratic action. So that is where Bodies like the Carbon Trust, very good NGO, will measure the carbon bootprint of watching the Australian Football League Grand Final go tides, uh, revenge after 37 <laughs> years of hurt, on a phone versus in a plane uh, in Western Australia versus in South Australia and so on. 
So that technocratic model that can allow people to say, gee, I never knew that if I watched at home on television with my friends or I went to a bar or a cafe and watched collectively, then the carbon impact would be less than if I were motoring around, um, you know, with the Hutchins folks and watching it on my phone. That technocratic element can be good. And certainly more direct action on the, in the form of activism, but not from on high like Greenpeace, rather from below actual fans. You've got some fascinating material on the carbon footprint of mega events, such as the, the Football World Cup. I mean, I suppose, could you offer a, a sense of you know, what that sort of carbon footprint is, um, you know, not necessarily in reference to numbers, but just a, an indication of its size, but also why we don't hear more about them um, in the coverage of sports events? Well, if you look at, I suppose, the media sphere in general, and certainly sports as well, then you're looking at an overall impact on the environment that is, when you include air travel, not that dissimilar from that of the aviation sector. Mm. Um, That's quite quite a stunning thing for us to ponder. And it's everything from powering up your computer to getting in your car to loading luggage onto planes, you name it, the vast energy that is... Uh, used in in that process it's it's really very very striking and and, uh, in terms of why it hasn't had more impact why perhaps listeners to this podcast may not have thought about this or may have thought about it or know about it maybe know more about about it than we do but have not read about it in the bourgeois press is the usual problem that applies with the bourgeois media's coverage of sports in all the parts of the world that i know namely most of the people who are sports journalists are fans and and proudly so just as you're familiar with the problem of many people in kinesiology and the other scientific elements of uh, academic sports sociology and affiliated fields they're there because they really love sports you know they love cricket they love football they love horse racing whatever it may be And whilst nowadays there has been sufficient pressure as a consequence of various social movements for them to have to engage issues of gender and race and to a certain extent occupational health and safety, by and large, the pressure has not been present in the ecological sphere. And I think that's uh, partly as a consequence of the fact that the social movement for environmentalism hasn't focused very much on sports by contrast with the extractive industries. And partly because because journalists are busy just trying to make copy and tell stories. And those stories are generally about people. And the social movements articulated to race, gender, sexuality, and so on, are very much about people. Whereas the environmental story really has had a problem in terms of bourgeois media, how to personalize it, because that's what the media like in general. And there aren't so many individual stories to be told. So I think that's really one of the problems. Plus, it hasn't had politicians picking it up as a major line of inquiry, as opposed to, for example, looking at corruption in FIFA, the body that runs world football. So I just think that it's not there on the tip of consciousness of the ordinary fan who has lots of other things to worry about, but also isn't given this kind of information by clubs or more particularly by the bourgeois media. Having said that, there are some clubs that have done remarkable work. Uh, Juventus built a new stadium a few years ago that derived 
derived entirely from recycled materials. But when we talk about Juventus, we might talk about corruption, we might talk about Gigi Buffon, we might talk about their great backline over the last few years, but we're not going to talk about their ecological stadium. It doesn't get the attention. I think about 13, 14 years ago, I mean, you're familiar with Roy and HG, middle of a state of origin game that was being particularly boring and just literally in the middle of it, Roy just goes, Christ, I'm sick of this, and then says, hey, she, what do you think the carbon footprint of the game is? <laughs> and he said, yeah, he was staring at the lights, and, go, and then they started adding it up, and it was just a really strange little moment, and then they just got back to the game. But it wasn't until that, of course, that I'd even, it was a funny way to have that issue highlighted, but you, you just hear it so rarely. That's, that's absolutely fascinating, Brett. and the reason is this, as you know, there are guidelines for commentators when play becomes particularly dull or when it's a wipeout and it's clear that only one team can win or one driver can win or one player. And really, those guidelines often are take Henry Blowfly or Henry Blofeld, the lamented retired cricket commentator talking about pigeons and buses and whatnot. That's fine. That's a nice and fun thing to do. And it's quite evocative, actually, if you're imagining what life is like at a cricket ground. But wouldn't it be great if those guidelines included discussion of, for example, floodlights, radio, transmission, TV, and so on? Uh, wouldn't that be fantastic if we could have that as part of the color commentary when play itself is pretty dull? But you're, you know, Roy and HG, those great Australian comedian commentators, I think managed remarkably to blend sometimes to blur keenness for sports with really critical eyes and good humor. And I suppose it's their example in lots of ways. If I think back to 30 years ago when I used to listen to them on 2JJ, as it then was, the <laughs> yes. Sydney-based radio station, were making political points all the time while doing so in a fun way that offended few people. And I think that that combination of humor, pointedness and fandom really allowed them to stand out because they had all those three in equal measure. And a, a question about the title of the book. Um, you sort of use the term greenwashing. Now, greenwashing a term with a, a reasonably lengthy history and it's in the context of sport, what, you know, what does greenwashing actually refer to and how does it connect to the core argument about you're making about why professional sports and the corporations that sponsor them and profit from them are guilty of greenwashing. So the at least mythic origins of the term greenwashing go back about 30 years when a quasi-hippie backpacking dude was going around the United States, checked into a cheap hotel, looked into his room and saw perhaps for the first time or noticed for the first time a sign saying, save the environment, recycle your towels and hand towels and looked at this and thought, hmm, hogwash, I think you're trying to save money on electricity, labor and cleansing materials and coined the term greenwashing to describe that process whereby a company or a government or any entity or person would endeavor to cover up their ecological activities or their business activities with the notion of being good green entities. And in the sports domain, what I'm really trying to get at is twofold. One element is that sports themselves are major polluters, and you've already mentioned uh, the Winter Olympics as an example of that. 
the other element is that not only are they ecologically uh, responsible for some of the crisis we're in, incurring in ways that we're not aware of, again, because we contrast them with the extractive or manufacturing sectors. But the second thing, the B, if you like, is that there are many corporate entities that choose to sponsor sports, as they do in other cultural fields, because this makes them look good in in the eyes of the public. It makes them look as though they're interested in doing good rather than just making money. And this is the notorious corporate social responsibility ethos. They can throw a few million bucks at sports and they get advertising and they get advances in what is called the social license to operate. Now, both these concepts, corporate social responsibility and social license to operate, are not what uh, pointy-headed academics talk about. They're what hard-nosed, <laughs> you know, dome-chromed, uh, as Roy and HG would say, business people talk about. The social license to operate refers to this fact, that for the extractive industries, for miners and so on, they have to get the legal right to dig up the land or the ocean. They have to get the monetary right by buying or renting space, but they have to go beyond that and get the social license as well. In other words, the endorsement of local peoples and national ones, whether they be indigenous peoples or others. An example would be that Chevron funds various activities by the Wayu, an indigenous people who traverse Venezuela and Colombia in their national boundary uh, in order to try to gain their support. The Chevron company puts, creates and, and funds a Wayu museum. So uh, that would be uh, one instance. And this social license to operate is incredibly valuable to them. So they put in relatively small money and they get quite a return. So they both derive some sense of not being self-interested from their activities of sponsoring sports and simply benign overlords of our lives at the same time as uh, sports get uh, money from corporate and trade on the mythology of their own greenness. And on the corporate social responsibility front, that's the wider question, not just the social license to operate, which is again showing we're good citizens. And here the point is not so much to gain the public's faith in contracts or mining operations already signed, sealed and undertaken, but rather to elude regulation. Uh, the key element is to create a benign image in the mind of the wider public so that the wider public does not seek to act democratically in order to regulate the activities of these entities. What's your thought on the usefulness of the term social license itself? In some ways, even the term itself, one, you know, the notion of the social, you know, being based in the idea of organic notions of community, but also invoking, you know, the language of government and the state at the same time, that somehow someone somewhere is going to issue a license. I think what you're gesturing at is the possibility that there's something positive in the idea of a social license to operate a role for social movements, a role for the social order, a role for government in uh, determining what public views are of, for example, um, various corporate activities, that it takes us beyond just the realm of the legal requirement to obtain a license to do something to a space and the monetary requirement to do so. Is that right? Is that what you're yeah, that, referring to? Uh, yeah, that's yeah, in the context of this book, absolutely. I guess I've seen it as a concept entirely colonized by business. 
mm. and treated it as such in the book. I think what you're talking about is something much more interesting <laughs> and potentially very fruitful, that this actually might set in train the notion that there is a thing called the social and that it matters and that uh, it should be involved in making decisions. So, yeah, I, I probably went too far down the route of the political economic pessimist in the book and didn't think enough about this other angle, which I think you're right, could be very, very positive. And turning to a, another probably far uh, overused term and um, a term that increasingly means everything and nothing, the sustainability. Now, in, in th- looking at what you were writing, for example, around the Olympic Games, there's a lot of talk in Olympic host city promotional materials about sustainability. And indeed, the International Olympic Committee also makes much of its commitment to sustainability. Why is this term invoked so often? And how does it relate to what actually happens um, in environments in the physical world? Well, it's a term that was adopted as a midpoint between extreme conservation and extreme environmental destruction. In other words, it was seen as a a mediating possibility between ambit claims, the ambit claim made by the principal polluting industries, that what they did was essential for human development and pleasure, and that those who would take this away from the majority of people would be denying them the fruits of their own earth, versus a position that said, well, you're destroying the earth, there'll be nothing left over, look at your record, and uh, what we need to do is, in a sense, return not to a subsistence model, but to, if you like, a capitalism or socialism in one country model, albeit in a peaceful way. And sustainability was saying, hang on, you can have everything, you can be superwoman, you can be the chief executive officer of Hutchins Enterprises, and also, you know, be a contented mom and sportswoman right? That kind of thing. The sustainability model said we need to have a sustainable economy and we need to have a sustainable ecology. And what this means is undertaking cost-benefit analyses that enable us on each and every occasion to give a little bit in one direction and a little bit in the other. So that's the sustainability paradigm as adopted by the United Nations and many other bodies. Now, it's got lots of good aspects to it, but it is one of those things where for both Besides, compromise is a problem. It's especially a problem for environmentalists because they see this as not something that should be subject to ambit claims and political concessions, but rather an absolutist scientific fact. And it's a problem for corporations because quite quickly this can potentially impose costs on them that make various of their activities not worthwhile and push them into other directions. So it's not satisfactory to the principal participants, but it's entered into the lexicon as an example of a sensible middle way between these extremes. Now, when it comes to sports, it seems to me that it's a usable word, and I probably use it in the book. I haven't checked how often I do so in its various formations, sustainability, unsustainable, sustainable, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it seems to me it's become a word that does some work that people can accept even though it has this rather sorry history of compromise when really one side of the argument is much sounder than the other. A question without notice. Besides greenwashing sport, could you recommend uh, a book on the topic of 
environment, media, or something either old or new that you believe listeners should read? Gee, well, on sport, there really hasn't been that much that I'm aware of, but there are very good individual bits of writing by Jules Boykoff, B-O-Y-K-O-F-F, and also Max Boykoff, his brother. One of them, I forget which one, was actually an Olympian, I think, or certainly close to the U.S. Olympic team. So the Boykoff boys, as it were, are very, very interesting. For people who are looking at sports more generally, Jay Coakley, C-O-A-K-L-E-Y, has written some great textbooks that I'm sure you've used mm. and, and read, Brett, which include elements that touch on these things. When it comes to the media element, I'm not aware of good popular books slash scholarly ones, but one place people can go to find out a heck of a lot is the Carbon Trust. Carbon Trust, which I mentioned earlier, is a British-based non-government organization. It's a not-for-profit. It does contractual of organizations and it has some really excellent diagrams that depict the carbon bootprint of watching sports they were good enough to let me reproduce them for free in the book so it's worth going to their web page they have really nice color illustrations that i think are very very handy for alerting us to this the other thing i'd say in, not in terms of a recommendation but a request is that if there are sports fans listening that you raise these issues to the extent you deem them pertinent, with your clubs or your fellow players or fans. See where the people can draw some connection that may not have been always obvious to them between their pleasure or their work in sports and an environmental impact. We really need that connection to be drawn. Final question. What, what are you working on now and what, are, what can we look forward to in terms of your research over the next couple of years? Well, at the same time as greenwashing sport, came out, so did Greenwashing Culture, which is its equivalent, mm. looking at museums and galleries and so on. And just this week, uh, a new book is called The Routledge Companion to Global Cultural Policy, which I co-edited with Victoria Durer and Dave O'Brien. And I'm currently writing a book. The first time I've written a book in Spanish, I've written articles in Spanish and had them translated, called in English, The New International Division of Cultural Labor. I'm editing a second edition of the four-volume television studies greatest hits that I did with Routledge in 2002, bringing up to date major articles and book chapters written in English and published in the period, well, from the beginnings of television studies now through to, I guess, last year it will probably be. And I'm editing the Sage Encyclopedia of global popular culture, which is a bit on hold due to my own inefficiency. But those are the things that I guess are occupying me right now. Fantastic. And look, Toby, thank you for your time and your willingness to speak with me for the Media Sport podcast series. It's, it's genuinely appreciated. It's been a pleasure. Always nice to chat.